The Butter Did It by Phyllis Rickman Lawrence Levain's knees have been aching for the last hour. A chef's knees are the first thing to go. He knows that well. But at 42, he refuses to worry about such things. Lawrence still has his wiry, athletic good looks. His restaurant stars keep shining brighter and he's just finished turning a tub of flour and two dozen pounds of smoked salmon into $10,000 worth of pasta. He's not about to let aching knees spoil his satisfaction. Outside Shea Lawrence, November winds are slicing through Washington's darkness. Inside, the kitchen looks like spring. Lawrence stands alone, massaging his legs amid hundreds of salmon pink and herb green stuffed pastas laid out like a patchwork quilt ready for stitching. On the menu, these pasta squares are listed as Les Nules en Quilt Multicolor and they're priced at $20 per single 4-inch piece. Familiarly, they're called Lawrence's Quilts and this world-famous pasta is one of the reasons people in Washington say that the only dinner reservation more difficult to get is at the White House. Nobody would ever taste such pasta again if I died, Lawrence boasts to himself as he stacks the quilts in the walk-in refrigerator. He's alone in the kitchen not only because it is late Sunday night, but also because tomorrow night's City Taste Scala requires that each chef prepare his signature dish without assistance. What's more, Lawrence has never allowed anyone to learn the secrets of this paper-thin, translucent pasta. For years, other chefs have tried to duplicate its transparency, its ability to hold fillings in place as if they were stitched like cloth. Lawrence's quilts look like patchwork fabric, his imitator squares are merely ravioli. Lawrence is tired, exhausted in fact. He wipes the sweat from his chin and lurches from a sudden wave of nausea. I should have eaten something earlier, he chastises himself. He tends to feel faint when he stands on his feet the whole evening without food. I'll grab something at home, he decides, after a good, stiff, relaxing drink. Hurried by the thought, he stops briefly to comb his hair then leaves the kitchen mess behind for the dishwasher and buttons his heavy coat for the walk home. By the time Lawrence arrives at his apartment, just a few blocks away on Massachusetts Avenue, he is no longer alone. He takes off his coat, trembling from the cold. Calvados will warm us up, the chef promises his companion, pouring two small glasses of the apple brandy that, as orange juices to American kids, has been a part of him since his Normandy childhood. He hands one glass to his guest, who's still wearing coat and gloves and examining Lawrence's wall of awards. Lawrence picks up his own glass, as he always does, thumb and forefinger grasping it by the rim. He salutes his companion and tosses back the Calvados in one gulp. The companion, not feeling nearly as friendly, refuses to join the toast, but instead responds with a few sharp words. Lawrence is disconcerted, holds up a hand in a placating gesture. It doesn't work. You have no right to go public with this, the angry guest hisses. When that gets no more than a shrug from Lawrence, the anger turns to begging. Please don't do it, 
It will ruin me. You're overreacting, Lawrence says placidly, without suggesting any compromise. But let's not argue. Take off your coat and make yourself comfortable. Whew, I smell a fish. I've got to take a shower and find my heart medicine. I feel like shit. He pronounces it sheet. While Lawrence has always been known to be obsessively neat, for the second time tonight he is sloppy. In the bathroom he strips off his clothes and drops them in a heap on the floor, then steps into the shower for a scrub that lasts hardly a minute. He wraps himself in a burgundy silk dressing gown and returns to the living room, ready for one more attempt at peacemaking and another drink. Lawrence fills two clean glasses with Calvados and carries them to the nubby white sofa. He hands one to his companion, but the guest, still upset, spills half the Calvados. Could you get me a towel? The guest's tone is whiny, impatient. Sit still, I'll find one. Lawrence sets his own drink down on the coffee table and goes to the kitchen. He returns with a towel, detouring from the Calvados bottle. He refills the spilled glass and once again proposes a toast. This time the guest joins him, saying, To your health. The two drink down the Calvados, both shivering from the impact of the 80-proof brandy. Lawrence's shivering doesn't stop as he returns the bottle to the bar. Instead, his tremors continue until he collapses to the floor and stops breathing. The guest sits, riveted, on the sofa, staring at Lawrence twitching and jerking for a moment as the body resists its fate. All motion stops. Despite everything, the guest's first instinct is to aid Lawrence and to rush to the dying man's side. Stopping short though, this silent witness never touches Lawrence, merely stands immobile for several minutes watching death take over. At last, the observer turns towards the door, then, with hand on the knob, stops. Something must be done. The guest turns back and pockets two of the four used glasses, rummages through Lawrence's bedroom for a moment to find a few things, then arranges them in the living room to set the scene before leaving. Chapter 1 Clams. They were what worried George. I had ordered the clam fritters. Palourde en beignet, and today was Monday. It was lunchtime, and the fish delivery wouldn't be until the afternoon, so these were bound to be left over from Friday. A cold snap like the past weekends can cause last-minute cancellations and leave the kitchen full of expensive perishables. Marcel Rousseau, the chef and owner of the newly relocated Le Raison d'Etre, must have put the clams on the list of specials to get rid of them before the new shipment arrived. I would find out. George, the eggplant-shaped maitre d', busied himself straightening perfectly aligned silverware at the tables around me. I could see that he was anxious. In fact, the entire dining room staff kept a wary eye on my table as I sipped my Sancerre. Being a restaurant critic, especially for Washington's newest and fastest-growing newspaper, The Examiner, means that restaurateurs scrutinise every bite I take and I was lunching alone, which apparently made everyone doubly nervous. The tension was so electric, 
that I was afraid it would cause static on my tape recorder. It's a strange life being a 48-year-old perfectly ordinary and slightly overweight, medium-height, vaguely blonde, green-eyed woman who creates a clamour just by eating lunch. I never make reservations under the name Chaz, short for Charlotte Sue, weekly, and can often get by unrecognised, but not today. I try to look unaware. I never order fewer than three courses, which I eat at a leisurely pace, sipping a glass of wine and observing the dining room openly rather than hiding behind a book. I don't take notes, but sometimes I use a tape recorder to whisper a few details. When I come alone, restaurateurs know that can mean very good news or very bad news. It means their restaurant is being reviewed. Even more, it signals that I've finished tasting my way through the menu on previous visits and now want to concentrate on a particular dish or on the flow of the service around the dining room, on something I loved or something I hated before. In either case, my solitary meal is no fun for anyone. Today's visit hadn't started well for George. I arrived at the same time as the Secretary of Defence and George rushed to greet him as I stood a few steps behind. He was obviously about to usher the Secretary to the best table in the house when he did a double take and registered that I was there. Reviewer panic set in. Not one to lose his aplomb for long, George glanced at his seating chart again and led the Secretary of Defence to the second best table. Such are the balancing acts of Washington, and such is the outlandish kowtowing to restaurant critics. Nor was that the end of George's test of diplomacy. La raison d'etre's entrance was beginning to crowd up just as he was leading me to my table. When we were halfway through the dining room, Reginald Lonsdown, the new Republican senator from Mississippi, who used to be the old Democratic senator from Mississippi, stopped me, thus delaying George as well. Jazz, honey, you look perfectly beautiful today with your hair swept up like that, Lonsdown oozed. Nice of you to say so, I replied, trying to sound sincere. You know, it's lucky I ran into you, he went on. I was thinking of calling you, as it happens, to ask if you could recall the name of that Thai restaurant in Chicago you wrote about, the one where you described the entrees, I remember it exactly, as looking like a tropical garden just after the mist has evaporated. I said I was flattered that he could quote me verbatim. Then I spelled the restaurant's name for him, Arun, while George discreetly shifted from foot to foot, worried about the crowd at the door. Senator Lonsdown held us, asking if he could use my name in getting a reservation. I'm sure your name is more than sufficient, I told him. George seated me with barely disguised relief. While George had showed a dignified unease over my visit, Brian, my waiter, looked as if he were about to fall apart. He was probably still quaking over the first time he had served me three visits ago. He had decidedly not recognised me as a restaurant critic. I was alone that afternoon too, but then I was waiting for my friend Shirelle, the examiner's theatre critic, who is late for everything except the opening curtain. I had kept checking my watch and probably was fidgeting with my sunglasses. 
I usually tried to pace myself better, but in my impatience I'd finished my glass of wine and two slices of olive bread. This waiter, a lamb chop of a guy closer to my daughter's age than to mine, came up to my table and leaned one hand on it. Any waiter should know better. He affected what he must have considered a sexy smile and came on to me. Hi, I'm Brian. Did I see you cleaning your sunglasses with Chardonnay? I was already irritated with Shirelle for being so late, and I'm the wrong woman for the casual leer. Having been a fat kid who slimmed down late in college, I am still inclined to take an attractive man's overtures as a gag rather than a compliment. If you'd been attentive, you'd know I was drinking Sauvignon Blanc, not Chardonnay, I paused, and you would have refilled my glass. To his credit, Brian immediately served me an apology and a second glass of wine. He had gotten the message even without the added embarrassment of recognising the messenger. The rest of the evening he was impeccably polite without pandering. Unlucky guy, here he was, now knowing I was a restaurant critic and having to serve me again. He must have been in a sweat. Each time he came from the kitchen, he sniffed in the direction of his underarms, as if worrying about whether he'd used enough deodorant. So the maitre d' was nervous, the waiter was panicky, and the busboy tiptoed around as if he were afraid he would drop the rolls or spill the water. An everyday lunch for a restaurant critic. In contrast to the rest of the staff, the sous-chef was an oasis of calm. Stanley, the second-in-command, who actually does most of the work, came to my table when he heard I was there to let me know that the chef, Marcel, wasn't around. Marcel, he explained, had slept late this morning after being up most of the night preparing his soup en chemise for tonight's City Tastes benefit. Then Marcel had rushed off to Dulles Airport to pick up his wife, Marie Claire, after her flight from Mexico had been delayed overnight. City Taste Day definitely isn't a good day to lunch in Washington. Every chef in town would have been working late last night cooking for this hunger relief gala that has become the fall fashion show of food. Most chefs would have been feverish over a critic showing up on such a day. But I wasn't surprised at Stanley's insouciance. It would be Marcel's reputation on the line rather than Stanley's when I wrote my review. A sous-chef has nothing to lose and everything to gain. If a review is good, he'll attach it to his resume and justly claim that he was the one who really did the cooking. If it's bad, the chef will take the heat. Still, Stanley ought to have been embarrassed to serve last week's clams. After all, clam fritters demand so few ingredients. All he'd had to do to feed the entire dining room was open a couple of dozen clams and add their juices to two cups of flour, along with maybe a quarter of a cup of oil, a little salt, a dash of cayenne, and enough water to turn the flour mixture into a smooth paste. The hardest part would have been beating two or three egg whites until stiff and folding them into the batter, then deep frying the mixture by spoonfuls. Some chefs use baking soda instead of egg whites. Others add beer or wine instead of water, egg yolks or butter instead of oil. In this case, there was hardly anything to mask the taste of the clams, so their freshness was critical. 
Stanley had hardly left the table when they arrived. Your clam fritters, Miss Wheatley, Brian offered with cool formality and not a trace of flirtation. Score one, he was learning. I ate a fritter and smiled, not wanting to show that I had detected a bitter, overripe edge to the clam inside. Brian hovered anxiously, eyeing the clams. How are they? I changed the subject. I hope you're going to City Taste tonight. It's the one place you'll see every powerful person in the city at the same time and get to taste all the best food of the year. I thought I'd show the guy that he was forgiven. He was probably still worrying that I would slap his hand in print. Brian brightened. I wouldn't miss it. I love these tax-deductible charity galas. Feed the hungry by overfeeding the affluent. With a suggestion of a bow, he went on to another table. At the moment... George was answering the phone and simultaneously greeting a House Committee chairman from Massachusetts. To my astonishment, I saw his smile freeze. His face turned the colour of bechamel. He left the chairman standing with outstretched hand unshaken as he hung up the phone and rushed to the kitchen. Now I was the one who tensed. I had thought it would take a nuclear attack to shake George's impeccable composure. I'd never seen him rude before, not even when he'd received a call telling him that President Reagan had just been shot only a few blocks away. I'd been in his dining room then and had watched George calmly announce the news to each group of White House staff and congressional leaders table by table with never a crack in his veneer. I caught Brian's eye and beckoned him over. Something's happened that's got George upset, I said quietly so that nobody else would overhear. I wonder if you'd snoop a little for me and tell me what's up. I gave him a new old friend smile. Brian, probably like most men who enjoy being with women, also loved gossip. He made a short detour to deliver a wine list and headed for the kitchen. George burst out of the kitchen half a table ahead of Brian. He headed right for me, still pale, even trembling. Madam Chass, he nearly whispered. His face was twitching. It's Lawrence, his bad heart. He has died. At that, George's voice squeaked loudly and the two men at the next table looked up. Lawrence, the only, the only chef to appear in Time, The New Yorker and People magazine's 50 Most Beautiful, all in the past year. The only chef to cook birthday dinners for both the President of the United States and Oprah. The only Michelin three-star chef who had established a chain of soup kitchens. Lawrence Levine had been my mentor, my lover and, above all, my friend. His heart had stopped. Mine was breaking. I couldn't believe it. I could not move. Brian had seen my sudden paralysis. He showed up at my table with my coat just as I stood up desperate to be alone. I grabbed a 50 from my wallet, sure it was more than enough to cover my lunch and unwilling to pause for change. Brian took my arm and guided me to the door. We made our way through a sea of voices as I struggled to breathe. I could hear some of the restaurant staff's reactions. So young, only 42. What are we going to do about the senator's dinner next week? I could name a few chefs who'll be celebrating at this funeral. On the street at last, I didn't know whether to scream or sob. By sheer will, I escaped without doing either.